Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Leaders in Medicine, a special podcast series led by our section editor on pulmonary and critical care medicine, Dr. Jasbal Singh. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Women in Medicine series on Consultant 360. I'm Dr. Jaspal Singh. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician in Charlotte, North Carolina. And with me today are two eminent speakers. We're going to have a great conversation with Drs. Jean Wright and Dr. Melan Han. We'll start with you, Dr. Han, to introduce yourself. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. So my name is Melan Han, and I am a pulmonologist researcher at the University of Michigan. I actually recently took over as chief for the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care. But relevant to today, I'm also a member of the GOLD Committee that writes management. We don't like to say guidelines, but treatment recommendations. How about that for COPD? That sounds great. Great to have you here. And congratulations on being chair of the University of Michigan. Thank you. And Dr. Wright. Hi, it's great to be here. Every conversation uh, with you, Joswell, gets my brain geared up, so I'm looking forward to this. Clinically, I'm an anesthesiologist and intensivist, but I spent the last 10, 12 years in innovation. And in that role, really began to learn about COPD and and as we often refer to it as the silent or invisible epidemic. So unlike the two of you, I don't practice in this space, but instead I look at systems approach, like how do healthcare systems build capacity and think about COPD. Jasper, you've watched how we've wrestled to try and get it on the front of mind of clinicians and administrators. And then along with uh, Melan, we serve on the COPD Foundation Board. So we're always thinking about advocacy. How do we get the word out? How do we increase NIH funding? So I'm on that side of the spectrum. That's fantastic. It's going to be an awesome, an awesome episode today. So let's start with Melan. Uh, we're going to use first name just because it makes it easier to talk. Melan, talk to us a little bit. You know, the gold guidelines have gone through multiple iterations. And as a clinician, I oftentimes get confused. You know, which guideline I'm using, whether I'm doing anything, my PFTs right, my diagnostic treatment approaches. What do you think most clinicians need to pay attention to today in the newer guidelines that they may not have really picked up? Yeah, you know, I think it's been hard for us to all stand top of general med ed in the past few years while just dealing with the pandemic and trying to figure out how to treat COVID and manage homeschooling, if you're like me. (laughs) So (laughs) there haven't been major, major changes, but there have been subtle incremental changes. We're actually due for what we call a major update this year, and we just voted on which topics we're going to make it. There's actually quite a bit. But, you know, I think that some of this, some of the general thought process is the same with incrementally adding either bronchodilators or inhaled steroids as appropriate to treat either dyspnea or exacerbation. So if people haven't looked at the gold document in a while, uh, it, it really does have two pathways for treatment now, whether your goal is intensification of treatment because of shortness of breath, or is it because of exacerbation? So that's That might be a new concept for people. Another thing is that stratifying by eosinophils really is now kind of part of our standard rubric. And for patients that essentially the higher the level of the eosinophils, the more likely a patient is to benefit from inhaled steroids, particularly with respect to exacerbation reduction. So that may or may not have, have reached everybody. The other thing that maybe people missed is that we do have several single device triple therapy inhaler options for patients now. But one of the most exciting things about that data, to me, honestly, is not just that 
triple therapy pre prevents exacerbations as compared to either dual combination in terms of ICS LABA or LABA LAMA combination bronchodilator, but that the data from both ethos and impact to the large COPD trials that have been done in the last few years both showed mortality reduction for these frequent exacerbators. So that is another message that I'm not sure has actually trickled down to everyone as well. And I think at the, the bottom line or the, the hope, you know, uh, Jean said earlier on, you know, our part of our goal at the COPD Foundation is to raise awareness. I think both Jean and I recognize that for a while now, we've really had a lot of therapeutic nihilism when it comes to COPD, particularly from the primary care provider group. And one of my hopes was that with this data on mortality, it would really make people stop and say, okay, I have to get this right. I actually have to make sure I have patients on appropriate therapy because if I don't, you know, there's actually a mortality benefit here. So I, I can't say that that's actually translated. And I feel like there has been so much noise with the pandemic and other messages bouncing around in the echo chamber that I feel like that message has gotten a bit lost. I think that's great. So you started out talking to us about sort of like what to pay attention to. The most of it's the same, what you said, sort of like paying attention to what you both label as the silent epidemic, sort of recognizing it, giving attention to it, put some evidence behind it, the evidence behind the care plan that you, that, that you develop, and sort of thinking about the aspects of an incremental approach to either using, using treatment for symptoms versus exacerbations and how there might be a little bit of a differentiation now, which wasn't there before. Eosinophilia or eosinophils and sputum, whichever one you can hopefully get. Is that right? Am I thinking that wrong? Well, actually, there's some debate on, on this. Uh, it's hard. It's so hard to get sputum. So sputum is probably better, but because it's so hard to get sputum, most people are recommending blood. There's two tricky things about eosinophils. One is, does it predict exacerbations? And it does seem to predict exacerbations, but it seems to be better as a predictor when you're not looking at patients on inhaled steroids. Once patients are on inhaled steroids, it gets a little bit more complicated. Where Gold really recommends its use is a stratifier for use of inhaled steroids in terms of, of identifying a subpopulation that, that benefits. So when I talk about thinking about eosinophils, it's really trying to identify who would get exacerbation reduction benefit within, with ICS. I have a hard time getting sputum. So I'm going to stick with the serum for now until the lab tells me I can finally not, not get a midnight call saying, what are you ordering here? And um, that's great. And then the newer combination of inhalers, which are obviously, a, um, it's nice to see, you can almost personalize the therapy a little bit more than we ever did before, which is kind of nice. But that brings us to a sort of a second, sort of a nice segue into with other things that, that are happening. And Jean, I'm going to come turn to you a little bit. Uh, Melan mentioned labeling, the aspects of sort of identifying and labeling patients, a sense of nihilism, a sense of sort of defeat or sort of like it's their fault for smoking and being around certain exposures. And then has that changed from what you're seeing in your world? I don't think we've seen the change yet from the smoking. It's just a smoker's disease, but as physicians first, and then the population on a broader spread begin to realize oh, it's not just a smoker's disease. I think that mindset will begin to change. I mean, frankly, that's why some groups like COPD SOS are focusing on the firefighters from 9-11 because they're trying to move that, that stigma to essentially bringing it to a level platform of if you breathe, you could be at risk for COPD. Yesterday, I was watching the atrocities in Ukraine and my children were sitting there with me and they're all teens. And I said, that's the start of COPD. 
for some of those people. So those buildings that were that were being destroyed. Melan is very much involved in the COPD gene study. We know now that there's an enormous genetic impact and it's helping us identify people that have not only an early disease, but a fast or an accelerating pattern of disease. And I guess one of my passions is to try and get primary care physicians not to wait to the patient's symptomatic. You know, we've gotten past that in breast health and cardiac health. We don't wait, you know, literally till there's pew d'orange on, on the skin of, of a woman before we order a mammogram. We need that simple, basic change in public health thinking to start looking for it before we find symptoms. So that idea of an, an early PFT, you know, whether it's at 40 or 50, or you guys who are the clinicians would know, you know, I'm, I'm a, a pragmat, you know, a pragmatic person. I'm kind of like, could we do, you know, a, a peak flow? Could we have you blow out a birthday candle? Whatever. So we could really begin to raise awareness for the people that we need to follow into their older ages. That's, that's well said. So the idea of sort of finding them early and really just almost relentless ways of getting them and identifying them and not just this sort of just wait and wait and wait. And we see that way too often. Now, along that way, a lot's changed in the, in the COPD world, you know, this may not be necessarily inhaler related, but things like, you know, endobronchial valves or lung cancer screening. And I find, so I'm a pulmonary critical care person who I do a lot of lung cancer work. And so we see a lot of patients with lung cancer screening. I also happen to sort of play in the valve space. And it's been very interesting to me from a COPD perspective, relevant to this conversation, not about the valve, but the patients kind of bringing both of you in. One, to mail on to your earlier point, patients are more aware now of their diagnosis. They're seeking out newer therapies. They're seeking out clinicians that want to have an active involvement or have something. And the clinicians on the same side, there's a sense of nihilism. Some are like, well, this therapy doesn't work or this, or this doesn't work, or maybe fine, if you want, I'll send you over to have someone evaluate. Well, if I'm that person evaluating them, what I've noticed is we don't have a checklist. We don't have a standard. We don't have a sort of, they come many of them without PFTs, many of them without ever thinking about pulmonary rehabilitation. They've done oxygen supplementation, but they've never been told exercise. They've never been told to sort of evaluate their total capacity or look at other measures of measures of physical fitness, nutrition, and other aspects. And why do you think that is? Gene, start with you. Wow. I wish I know because I think we could crack the code. I would probably put it almost all the way back to med school and how we begin to teach people about lung disease. It's almost as if, if I've used my stethoscope, I'm, I'm done and I can check the box instead of realizing that that's a ridiculous evaluator of what's really going on um, you know, internally. I also think besides the med school approach, getting to the public, it's a bit like cheating, but it's really effective. I mean, if you think back to Bob Dole and the Cialis ads or other people that came on, um, every time I drive um, into our healthcare system, I pass at least three billboards, one for pre-D screening, one for colonoscopy, and one for hep C. Where is that billboard for COPD that could get the awareness passed? Um, we did a, uh, some interesting pilot work using social media, simple Facebook screening where we placed some uh, questions on Facebook and we didn't link it. To, they didn't know, you know exactly where it was coming from, but we were looking at click-through rates, you know, like, uh, are you able to walk as far as you'd like to? And, you know, does grocery shopping tire you? 
we had an enormous spike in click-through rates and we realized we could find people quite quickly and very economically using social media. So there, there's a variety of tools that are at our disposal that we have not gotten smart about like other disease leaders have. But Maylon and I were on an advocacy committee yesterday. It was a bit like taking a drink out of a fire hydrant because I think people really do want to crack this. I mean, frankly, that's why we have a TED talk out about it now is trying to find different ways to message and get to the public so they're not just dependent on their doctor asking. If I could, yeah, jump in here, Jean. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, so if we dial it back almost exactly two years now, a lot of people had questions about their lungs, right? And all of a sudden people were asking questions and, and in ways that they'd never had before. They were considering things that they had never thought about before, like what is a mechanical ventilator and, and things like that. And I, I actually, you know, had this fun opportunity at, at the beginning of the pandemic. I think some of you know, I actually wrote a book on, on how we breathe, breathing lessons. And one of the hopes that I had with that was really to educate the public on, on just what we're talking about and to take this message to the public to try to get the public to care. And I think that there's been so many things that have happened during the pandemic that highlight why we all have to care about respiratory health, why, why this is not just an issue important to a tiny subsegment. I mean, well, we knew always knew it was not a tiny subsegment, but right. it's not just, you know, other, right? It's, it's me too. It's, you know, when we look at, you know, risk for severe COVID, when we look at, you know, I did, you know, thinking back to your comment about medical school, Gene, we don't really talk much at all about all the other risk factors that we need to talk to patients about when we're trying to prevent stupidities. We talk about smoking and that's it. Mm -hmm. We don't really talk about all the other things that like dirty, dusty jobs, and, you know, think about all the women that, you know, are hairdressers and things like that. We don't talk about environmental air pollution. We don't talk about respiratory infections in children. And so I, I do think that there is an opportunity here to raise general awareness by, you know, by removing just the COPD specific thinking about this and trying to, to move it into a bit more, you know, general conversations around lung health to try to just engage the public, I think, in understanding, and then we can move towards these more specific awarenesses around, you know, COPD specifically. But I will say, I was really hoping that we would have the opportunity to move the needle during the pandemic. And we, it just hasn't happened yet. And I, I worry that we've missed the moment. I, I hope that we haven't. I think hopefully there will always be this new awareness and new thought about how do we prevent lung disease? How do we screen for lung disease? Why should we care about lung disease? But to be honest, I think we as a pulmonary community have not made enough noise. Now, now part of that is we've all been really busy taking care of patients with COVID <laughs> in the hospital. But I, you know, now is the time where I think we really do have to organize to try to, to, try to get from the top down, everyone really thinking about, about lung health as a priority. I think that's really yep. well said. Maylon's been really faithful about making the COPD Foundation aware of that. And, you know, when you think back to HIV and other public health concerns, there was a moment to seize and to leverage. And that's, in fact, you know, how a lot of NIH funding came, you know, came about. You know, that, one thing that, that has crossed my mind during this conversation 
is when women get the disease, they often get it earlier and they have a higher burden of illness. And, you know, if you're a mom, if you're in a career, what have you, you've learned to just tough it out and to put up with it. And, you know, we had ads in our youth about you've come a long way, baby. The problem is, you know, the outcomes of that were really detrimental to us. And I think, I don't think, I know this is a broadcast about women in in medicine, but, you know, women can be a powerful force if educated and organized. And I think, I think we ought to leverage that. That's really well said. And I think uh, it's a nice segue into sort of like, what is the fallout of all this? I mean, I'm thinking about, as you're talking about air pollution, you're thinking about, I'm thinking about like all the firefighters that are out in the, out in the West and exposure, the inhalational exposure that they're, that they're getting in addition to maybe, maybe also tobacco use or other tobacco products. I'm thinking about teens with tobacco products that are now popular, those vaping and such. Starting to think about, you know, the effects of, Gene, you mentioned Ukraine, but also other, you know, world conflict. We saw the 9-11 population have significant health sequelae afterwards. And I do worry, like Melania, you're saying, have we missed the moment? Some things have changed since the pandemic and something we've found out. I don't know if you want to comment about other things that you're seeing with the pandemic in terms of like what, what you saw clinically in terms of virtual visits, attention, lack of PFTs, lack of ability to assess for basic stuff. Anything else I'm missing? Uh, well, gosh, my brain's going in a million different directions. So I, ju- well, one thing I just wanted to comment on was, you know, you were talking about wildfire. So one of the interesting things, I don't know if you, this is, I, I'm still obsessed with this study, but there was a study from Harvard that showed just in the American West, where we saw an, um, the increased wildfires last summer, an excess 20,000 COVID cases and 750 COVID deaths related to the wildfires. Wow. So that was just an exposure we measured and could actually assess. What about all those other unmeasurable exposures that we're all getting every day? And I just keep thinking, does that help to explain why person A got mild COVID and person B got severe COVID? I am certain that either full-blown lung disease or some degree of lung inflammation or lung injury that, that people were not aware of contributed to the burden of disease that we're seeing from COVID. So that to me is a real eye opener. And I think really has to be one of the, the messages that we're pushing is I think that there's a lot, there's not only, I actually, I, I said this recently and, and I was so frustrated with this. I actually recently wrote an op-ed in the LA times about it, but, uh, and I think the editor might've pulled this out, but what I would wanted to say was that lung fragility is the Achilles heel that we did not know we had, right? This is why patients are dying. We didn't have good treatments before. We don't have good treatments now. And guess what? With all the investments that we've made into vaccines and and COVID-specific treatments, we have still seen very, very little investment into screening for lung disease, you know, treating acute and chronic lung diseases, you know, fibrosis repair, all these things that we as, as pulmonologists know are important. So that's that's sort of one thing that I, I I've been thinking a lot about. But but you had also asked something about how just care, you know, what do, how has my interactions with patients changed? It's, it's interesting. There's just so much there to unpack as well from one uh, patients didn't have as many exacerbations because they weren't, because they were all isolating. And so it, I think oh. it has taught us something about how do we maybe help prevent COPD exacerbations for our patients in the future. And maybe there is some permanent mask wearing that needs to be in place, but we also at the same time saw 
some of the social devastation for our patients in terms of anxiety and just from the complete social isolation. We also saw, you know, speaking from a kind of a healthcare disparities angle, it, it was kind of like a dual-edged sword because on the one hand, many of my COPD patients were always having problems with, with transportation anyway. So being able to switch to virtual is nice. Having said that, none of them had the appropriate tech. So, you know, they couldn't log on to their portals. I was literally registering people for COVID vaccines myself online during visits. I, you know, they want us to do these computer visits and I, a lot of my patients just can't do it. They're still on phone. And so, you know, and, and then some of the kind of, you know, more robust things that we rely on, like pulmonary rehabilitation. That's like, I, I mean, we could have a whole show on that because, we, they couldn't get, many of them couldn't access it during the pandemic, but guess what? They couldn't access it before because right. many of the, it was too far, not convenient. Uh, then we kind of dangle this carrot of, well, maybe we can get virtual rehab on board and, and maybe, and maybe there would be a pathway forward for that. And now the last I'd heard there's concerns about it, about reimbursement. And it, I mean, it may, you know, despite the NIH recently having an entire um, workshop on it, I'm not sure where that's going, if anywhere. So I guess, you know, it's highlighted for me a lot of the challenges that our COPD patients have. And, and again, I'm a bit frustrated. I get, I mean, virtual care is an advance. I will say that. But I, I still think there's just so much more we need to do to, to help our COPD patients get the care that they need. I don't know, Jean, I mean, you probably are thinking about this from a bit of a different lens. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, <laughs> I know there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. I don't know. I think in the future, uh, We'll have the genetic aspect of it, and we'll have genetic conversations, you know, in in the office. Uh, I do think it will be more of a job focus. I, I saw a couple in their mid forties, very healthy, but not vaccinated, who both had COVID. Both spent two weeks in the hospital. Both were on oxygen. Gratefully, neither was on a ventilator. But our children are friends, and every time I'm together, I'll say, "How are you doing? Are you short of breath? Have you had a pulse ox?" And they're kind of like, you know, sort of a worry ward on all this. Uh, <laughs> I think it'll broaden, but we're going to have to be really intentional and really lean in. In the call that Melon and I were on yesterday, I quoted a Don Berwick phrase of when he did the 100,000 Lives campaign, where he had a crisp deadline and measurable goals. And I think we're going to have to get to something like that. And right now, advocacy and, and organizations is always like the fifth thing you know, and it's nice and we're all passionate and then the call ends. And I think one of the things we felt yesterday is we're going to have to get really organized about it. Now, that being said, here's a little bit of the cynic. You know, I see that billboard about hep C because there's a cure for hep C and there's a pharma motivation behind that. And we don't have a big test that generates a lot of money or a big procedure like coronary bypass or angiography. And so we have to be creative and think different ways. But I think speaking to quality of life, and hopefully people will have seen the person in their neighborhood or at their kid's school or at their place of worship whose life really, really has been negatively changed. And, you know, you hate to bring those to light, but hopefully those can be some wake up calls for folks. Yeah. Do you think along those lines? So in my lens, in my world, I'm seeing lung cancer screening being everyone's getting excited about it. Finally, this expansion of expansion criteria, expansion of payment mechanisms, expansion of reimbursement, all those things that are starting to patients are talking about it, talking about with their friends, kind of like you start to see this sort of groundswell. So I think on the hope side, I see that aspect. 
The other aspect, and I mentioned the endobronchial lung volume reduction, which you can, we can debate the efficacy, but there's a little narrow window. And I've started to actually think about this within our, my little world and think about, well, if I'm going to do valves, it can't just be about the valve. It has to be about the whole person. It can't like, it can't just be like, you can't be like a diabetes doctor and just give some fancy insulin. You have to think about the whole nutrition, the aspects right. of, you know, the entire care, including some of the social and lifestyle choices and um, aspects that are, we don't really talk about. We don't get 15 minutes to really discuss, get to get you dive in. So how do you orchestrate an environment for a patient where those things are just how we do business? And so I think those might be opportunities, but I'm just curious what your thoughts there. I think Maylon is trying to say something. Well, I think that the, with between lung cancer and valves, it, they are a bit of a game changer for not just the, not just for the reasons you would think, and not just for the patients you would think. The difference is we're not getting a CT scans on a lot more people than we had before. With you know, imaging was not really part of the gold recommended, you know, that everybody get, but. Between lung cancer screening and valves, which can be up to an FEV1 of 50% predicted, the number of patients that are potentially getting imaging now skyrockets. And I think there's all sorts of opportunities there around the lung cancer side for identifying COPD. You wouldn't think that you would put somebody through an expensive radiation-inducing test to get something you could get cheaply on spirometry, but we're in this sort of backwards world now. Right. more people are probably getting lung cancer screening than they are spirometry. So, you know, there's some data I, in, you know, in my, I don't know, Gina, I'd be curious for your thoughts on this, but in my future world, there's some AI bot going on in the background and grabbing all that data from those lung cancer screening studies. And there's, you know, there's so much data that we can get off of those CT scans, including coronary artery screening and bone mineral density and all sorts of things that we know probably would have impact on how we care for patients with COPD, um, just emphysema alone can not only tell you risk, but also likelihood of exacerbations and, and symptoms. So, so I think that's kind of a game changer. And then just, just this idea that uh, we would might be getting more expanded imaging on patients in general. I think there is actually actionable information in there. So they're true, it's gonna be not everybody that gets the endobronchial valves. There's also lung volume reduction surgery, transplant, things like that. But but you know, some patients have more severe bronchiectasis, for instance, and there might be bronchiectasis specific treatments there. So I think that we're getting closer and closer to having more actionable information from imaging and that there is a potential for that to open up kind of a new world. I am excited about the fact that there are several device companies, pharmaceutical device companies that are looking at additional bronchoscopic treatments for, you know, COPD. But I think Going back to something both of you had just said about this kind of groundswell and, you know, getting pharma and FDA kind of excited and getting them to put out kind of the, the screening information. It's been a little bit of a catch 22 because we catch patients so late that when we come in with therapies, you know, we're just kind of barely maintaining ground and, and, and we're not generating that data to say it's really important that you get patients early, but then the, you know, this vicious cycle just kind of continues. And so I, you know, I've spent, not that I have any answers, but I have spent a lot of time thinking about how we can try to break that cycle. And, but I do think lung cancer screening might be, might be part of the answer and certainly might help us catch at least some of the patients earlier. Yeah. Gene, any thoughts on that? Yeah. You've got my innovation wheels turning now because I've never really thought about like a joint conference between pulmonologists and radiologists. 
in terms of, you know, if we're going to take this on as a cause, both groups, what could we do to find the most number of people in, in the least amount of time and that are already getting these exams done? I think sometimes we assume other specialties know what we do and, and they don't, just like we don't know. and We don't know what they're looking at. But I think there's some, you know, brainstorming, some you know, cross-pollination that could take place there to really, really get aggressive about this. Well, I think you've left us with a lot of interesting insights and um, some phenomenal things. So I'm going to go back and look at the gold guidelines with a more critical eye now. Look back at my lab and about the, about the sputum ESNFL, see if I can finally just not upset somebody else along the way <laughs> on my daily basis. Look back at some of the sort of the nuances of how do we get people through and start thinking holistically of the patients and their communities and who might be at risk and not just limiting it to tobacco products or I'm thinking about, you know, environmental smoke, environment, other aspects that might be exposed in genetics, start thinking about genetic aspects and risk factors, therefore, in that way. And then also sort of redefining how we approach and speak with our primary care community, the hospitalist community, the other people reach outside of our network to really get the message out that COPD is coming up. Meanwhile, we're going to also engage with industries, lung cancer screening programs, other programs, and really start to focus and build a sort of a sense of advocacy and maybe arm our patients with more information and get encourage them to get their sleeves rolled up and get more active in their day to day and forget the sense of nihilism and move towards with, you know, mutual trust, shared decision making and an eye on all kinds of aspects of value, quality of care and such Then miss anything else major. <laughs> I think we covered everything with the kitchen sink today, but I, th- I think that the bottom line for me is the more we can get the information out in an easily digestible way to the more, get more and more groups, whether it's patient groups, other physician groups engaged in this problem, the better off we're going to be. Exactly. I would agree with that. And we can talk forever about COPD, but I want to shift gears a little bit. So in this space, so Gene, you fascinate me. You're one of my heroes in life. I don't know if I've ever told you that flat out. But for a non-pulmonologist to take this on, to give up a very nice CEO role, to be honest with you, to really take this whole aspect on and really champion a cause that, I mean, you've become such a such an advocate for the community and the population and those at risk. I'm sure, you know, you've, as a woman, especially a woman leader who's, who's a woman leader who's not even a pulmonologist advocating for a systemic change. Talk to us about a little about that journey, if you mind sharing a few insights. I know you can talk forever about this one, but a couple of wow. insights for our audience, particularly related to your journey. And how did, how did you move forward? I'm sure there were some tough moments. There were a lot of tough moments. Some of you have heard me you know, talk in other arenas. I was looking at a population where we could apply predictive analytics and try and find essentially an undiagnosed or underdiagnosed group that maybe identifying them early. So it was a a theoretical construct at first. And people like John Walsh and Grace Ann Dorney Koppel crossed my path early. And everybody in the field knows that they are magical. They are addictive. They just get you into it. And they very much got me into it. And then I saw, wait a minute, this is impacting a lot of people. This isn't a rounding error. And, you know, Jasper, we've been fortunate to work in a system that's been very successful And when I went to some of the top leadership and I said, this is where we ought to focus innovation. I mean, they kind of looked at me like I was an alien and were like, and I bombarded them from every which way. One gentleman who was way high in the system at the time came to me and said, Gene, I've spent my whole career in healthcare. Now he's not clinical, but he's a, 
a tried and true hospital administrator. And he said, I have never heard the phrase COPD, never. Yep. And off camera, I'll tell you who it was, Jasper. And then later at that time, our chief medical officer kept telling me, this won't make a difference. Finally, after months of badgering him and just not letting up, because one thing in, in innovation, Milan's got a stellar you know, academic career as you do, you have to be almost a little bit crazy, right? You just gotta be on the edge of, I really believe this. And you have to turn off all the naysayers. Now, keep some people in your life that bring balance so that you really aren't crazy. <laughs> but my kids say they can't tell if I'm on the crazy side or not. Finally, this gentleman came to me and said, I've got to confess something to you. You have finally convinced me. And I think we ought to change. And I said, can I ask you, why did you block me so many times? And he said, because my dad had COPD. And he oh was my from God. West Virginia. And he made some poor choices about his own life, which I assume was smoking. And he was exposed to coal. And he was exposed to race cars. And I, the doctor, thought there was nothing you could do for it. And over the years, you've been beating me with this. I now realize I could have done something for him. And I'm struggling with a lot of guilt. That's so powerful. It's yeah. powerful, right? It's powerful. And you and I have seen there have been people early on in the campaign of this. In fact, one of the administrators said, Gene, why is your voice associated with COPD and not the pulmonologist? It's because they weren't making a dust up. Pulmonologists are really nice people. <laughs> Innovators have to get in and kind of, you know, create a little, little friction and a little attention and have some pain points. We say in innovation, you ought to hear no several times a day. You ought to hear it can't be done several times a day. And then you go to people like the Dorney Koppel Foundation, the COPD Foundation, American Lung, and you get validated and you dust yourself off and you come back in. And, you know, that's what I hear in you, Jasper. That's what I hear in Melon. That's what I hear in so many of our leaders right now is you are dusting yourself off and saying, let's not lose the moment of COVID. Let's not move the moment of these new therapies. Let's not move, lose the moment of radiology and a simple x-ray, you know, and I don't know, could it also be seen on a mammogram? Good no, you know, goodness knows, they sure go far enough up in your armpit. They must catch someone <laughs> at that point. So, um, I don't know. I, as you can tell, I became passionate about it. And then frankly, I met the patients and they really touched me. And I've been a clinician all my life, but I saw how nobody was beating the drum for them. And what a really poor quality of life they had. Yeah. And they inspire me and they do today. And when I see them pushing the oxygen, you know, going through the airport, or doing purse-lip breathing on the, you know, on the seat next to me at church, um, you know, I want to put my arm around them and say, "I get you, I get you," and and hope is on the way. So, I think a little crazy, a little believing the evidence, a little believing that the people that say no to you today will say yes to you tomorrow. Kind of all that put together. That's great. That's wonderful, Milan. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that. I know. Um... Shape, shape a little bit in academics, um, as we've seen a lot of the recent recognition of some profound disparities, including with the COVID-19 pandemic and being trying to be a mother and all the home duties that are often associated with women. Um, 
is first of all, congrats to me being a chair. I said that's a huge thing, especially a very important program like the University of Michigan uh, for research eminence and such. But I'm sure that you have some advice for aspiring academician leaders or leaders or even those in practice who are just trying to get things moving like genius, trying to disrupt things. Anything you'd like to share? I think Jean's right. You have to be a little bit crazy. <laughs> and um, gosh, you know, um, I think it can be hard sometimes, particularly early on in your career to have confidence in your own ideas and, you know, what your own beliefs are about, about things, because you may be a little bit different. And academics doesn't usually reward people necessarily for being necessarily different. There's usually kind of a traditional path that you follow. But I think many of the greatest leaders, men or women, have learned to be comfortable to kind of walking to the beat of their own drum, just to a certain extent, and to, to tuning out the naysayers, you know, a bit. And I think the farther along. It's funny, I've actually been fortunate to, um, in this role, I now actually have a coach that I've been working with. And so there's been a lot of introspection lately for me about where I am, why I'm here, how I got here, how do I help others, you know, succeed in their leadership journeys. And I think, to be honest, for me, it's been sort of a lot of just kind of coming to sort of acceptance that, you know, I, that I, I might be a little crazy and I might be a little bit out there and that's okay. <laughs> and, and maybe all the, I think there's a great quote from, from um, Alice in Wonderland, something, something like, uh, yes, you're bonkers, but all the best people are. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I think it can be hard, particularly for women to just start, you know, having some confidence, you know, in that. I think also, to be honest, I've been really, really fortunate to have amazing mentors. And that has been not just mentors, but mentors and sponsors would not be my mentor is a gentleman that we probably all know, uh, Fernando Martinez, but he uh, has just been the most amazing human being in terms of, and I wouldn't be where I am today without him. So, you know, and to be honest, the, you know, the other thing I will say is I've also really, you know, if you're thinking, if you're an inspiring, whether you're in private practice or wherever it is, Surround yourself with what I call peer mentors as well. My peer mentors have probably been almost as helpful, if not more helpful than, you know, technical mentors. They, you know, you're, they're part of your posse. They look out for you. If there's something that they can include you and in, get your name onto some list, they'll do it. Put your name on a grant, put your name on a, you know, include you in their paper, whatever it is, all those little bits help and to just have a group of people that you can on a text chain just go to and say hey you know I've got this situation what would you do so uh so that's all been all been really really um helpful for me I think to be honest thinking about leadership and career development and the pandemic one of the things that I worry about the most in particular are my junior faculty who have not had those networking opportunities, the, those water cooler conversations, the coffee break conversations that occur at, at large meetings, those opportunities mm -hmm. to get taken to a dinner, say, by your mentor and get, so to be honest, I don't know how people have been managing during the, during the pandemic without those more crucial and formal uh, interactions. And so I don't necessarily have a, a, 
you know, a magic bullet on how to fix that. I'm hoping that with things opening up and, and some face-to-face -face occurring more that that'll, um, that'll improve. But I will say that is one aspect of the, the pandemic that's really worried me. Incredible. So both of you have validated, validated my craziness and the insanity of And we've my seen life. it. Yeah, I, you've seen it, Jane. <laughs> and, um, and, and um, but it's, you know, it's been really fun talking with both of you. Um, very inspiring. Both of you have just been trailblazing and in uh, an important aspect of public health. It's not just a sort of a, yeah, it's nice. The stories are incredible. You're right. The patient journeys are incredible. Patients do inspire us. And as a public, this is a real emergency. We need to get a handle of this and not miss this moment. And so on behalf of Consultant 360, I want to thank you both, Drs. Jean Wright, Drs. Melan Han, for your time today. And take care and have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks.